Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wisencroft, and today... Manchester United are stunned at home by one of the worst sides in Premier League history. The less said about that, the better. Uh, elsewhere, Chelsea welcome Thomas Tuchel. And it's clear there's going to be some big changes on the way at Stamford Bridge. Sean Dyche survives on a bag of chips at Burnley. And will the wonder kid Martin Erdiger work his magic at Arsenal? Yeah, I've pronounced it right. That's what he says. He's been telling us all how to pronounce his name. Although he did say, Odegaard will do. So maybe, maybe you can call him either. I don't know. To help me through it all and maybe decide on what we call Martin Erdiger. Uh, Gregor Robertson, Tom Clark, and Tom Roddy. How are you doing, guys? Very well, Hugh. Thank Very well, you. Hugh. I'm uh, particularly I'm, I'm, enjoying your you know, teaching lesson to start the podcast. You know, the old adage, you learn something new every day. Can I have that again? Er- Erdiger, is it? Erdiger. I mean, it sounds it's pretty good. Yeah, it sounds well, like some go. sort of fairground ride, but it's, it, it works. It's got that pace to it. It rhymes. It's perfect. It's perfect. Um, and I listen, I'm in a great mood today. My dad is about half an hour away from his first jab of the vaccine, which Excellent. for me is a, it's, it's a stirring day. You know, an 80 year old man, pretty much almost there. You know, he's had cancer, prostate get him checked, guys. And um, and yeah, so he's on the list and um, he's getting it done. And, and I, I didn't think I'd be as elated about it as I am. So I'm very, the same. I'm the same view. My mum's getting it on Tuesday. Very happy to see that letter, yeah. Yeah, yeah, good feeling. And um, uh, to those of you out there who have had it or who have family members about to have it, I'm sure you'll you'll join in with us. We're, we're getting there, people. We're getting there together. And we start today's podcast discussing Manchester United. Despite being second in the Premier League, they're not immune to criticism. See what I've done there? See what I've done there anyway. The, the shock of the season as Sheffield United uh, got just their second win of the campaign and their first victory at Old Trafford since 1973. It was a major off night for Manchester United and Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's side. But Gregor, all credit really should go to Sheffield United. I mean, absolutely. It was kind of one of those, I think Phil Jagielka summed up afterwards where he was saying that, you know, so many players had fallen, you know, were, were out with injury. Felt like literally everything was against them. They, well, they had one win, um, going to a resurgent Man United, top of the league. And the, the team basically picked itself, he said. It was, apart from the strikers, the rest of the team, there was not really not any other options. And sometimes that can be quite liberating. It's like everything seems to, get to be against us and they go out there and they just absolutely, they were just magnificent. I thought Jagielka as well was just 
was incredible. Everything that he kind of threw his body in front of, it hit him. It was one of those nights. There was one one near the end, I think it was Fernandez got inside and he kind of threw his body flat on the floor and it hit his toe and went, <laughs> went out. It was just like, it was one of those days for him and he was, he was magnificent. And yeah, it was just kind of a bit, a bit more like what Sheffield United we we know we kind of we knew of them from last season and and that they were organised and committed and I think Chris Wilder was right too in that there's been very fine margins through, for almost all their games through the season and and on this occasion you know they got the deflection for the goal and the, you know the luck went with them a little bit and they thoroughly deserved the the three points I thought yeah I think eleven of the fifteen games they've lost. Uh, they've lost by a single goal. So it has been very fine margins for them. And it was great to hear Phil Jagielka talking after the game as well, saying even at the age of 38, the first person I called when I knew I was starting was my dad, who told me, as they both knew it would be his last game at Old Trafford, just enjoy it, son, which I thought was a after nice story. After laughing, I thought it was quite funny as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck, son. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He did, he did sort of say that as well. <laughs> look, his son's had a pretty decent career, hasn't he? So um, he deserved a special night at Old Trafford. Um, it was a major off night, as I say, but Chris Wilder said in the build up to the game that for his side, um, something extraordinary could happen this season. And I wondered whether last night could be the night to start things uh, off for them. And actually, it turned out to be in many ways. 10 points from safety still, though, Tom Roddy. Do you believe that Sheffield United could get themselves out of this? I, I do. This season of all seasons, Um but, and, and I just think it's it's felt like this is coming. I mean, I was talking to Paul Hurst, our Manchester reporter, before the game last night when he was travelling over, and it's not there was no it wasn't a foregone conclusion which tells you everything you need to know about Man United, but it also tells you what you need to know about Sheffield United because, as you said, Hugh, this it, it's not like they've been battered every single week. There have been a few occasions. I think Palace maybe it happened where they were really under par but they've always been in every single game and they're not they're not Derby of 2008 or Sunderland of 2006 or Huddersfield of a couple of years ago they're they've been really impressive and I felt sorry for them um that they they looked like they were heading towards that terrible Premier League record but I, I think what's what's interesting as well is maybe the FA Cup has helped them a little bit, you know, because they they got the win before the Newcastle game and then they, I, I think it was Plymouth, was it, who they beat in the last round before before this game. And you speak to, you speak to clubs like Wickham and I think the ownership was, was hope, was wanted to focus more on the league rather than, rather than the cup. But there was this idea in the team that, a cup run could really help them in terms of relegation in gaining momentum. Beating a team like Tottenham could provide a bit of belief going into the league. And it seems like that's what's happened with United, uh, with Sheffield United. And they've got City on, on Saturday. And I mean, that's a hard ask, but, but it does feel like something could happen this year. They, they've got it in, in that squad. I think they've shown enough, though, um, even in the game against Manchester United. I know that's a game that many people saw as a free hit for them. But if they play like that against most of the other teams in the league, you, you think they might well have a chance. What they've 
lacked our goals. And I was surprised uh, to see McGoldrick and Sharp starting up front. I mentioned, you know, it's a very experienced front line, let's call it that. But strangely, they were the ones breaking in behind the defence. They were the ones, you know, just teasing the offside trap, not the likes of Rashford and Martial and Greenwood at the other end of the pitch. Um, It was a great performance from Sheffield United. But Manchester United was so, so, so disappointing as well. And that has, has played into the result too. They made six changes, Tom Clark. Uh, the likes of, of Martial, who I just mentioned, Matic, Tellez, Tuanzebi, all started. And it was dire at times from them. It was really poor. And I think Tom makes a good point about um, talking with Paul Hurst. There's a few Manchester United fans that I was speaking to last night and they said similar. You know, they felt that this performance had been coming a little bit. And I have to say, I, I do slightly agree. Obviously, listeners will be wary of me launching into an anti-Solskjaer uh, a chat here, but which is not what I'm trying to do. But I have felt like United have looked a bit tired. They've, uh, In the flip side to what we were saying about Sheffield United, losing a lot of games by one goal and it not quite going for them. And since the Leeds game, particularly in the league, United... Manchester United have won a lot of games by one goal and things have gone for them. You know, Paul Pogba has hit a vein of form which has helped to negate the fact that Bruno Fernandes' form has dipped slightly, I think. We have to be honest, absolutely a brilliant player. Yes, he scored a brilliant free kick against Liverpool in the FA Cup. But I just think they, they have dipped slightly and I think those changes were a little bit complacent from Solskjaer, I have to say. Um particularly the choice to start Martial instead of Cavani. Cavani has been excellent in the last few games and Martial looks completely devoid of any confidence. He's still pursuing this idea of him being a central striker, which he just he just isn't. He, he wants to play off the left, which is unfortunately for him where Marcus Rashford is best. And against the Sheffield United side, Cavani would have been perfect. You know, Phil Jagielka did have an excellent game, but someone of a Cavani's experience and work rate as well let's be honest we've read a lot this week about his how his work rate has impressed Solskjaer pulling that cent- pulling that central defend those central defenders out of position creating space you watch that game and there were so many it's the classic thing with Manchester United Martial and Rashford end up standing next to each other and things in that kind of pocket of space in front of an opposition defence and then Martial almost goes oh crap, I'm not meant to be here, am I? Sorry, sorry, wait a minute, lads. I'll just go and get where I'm supposed to be in a central area making some runs. And it it it, it, it smacked of a little bit of complacency from Solskjaer. Um, and in this season when you would imagine both the title race and places in the top four, it's going to be very tight. It might come down to these fine margins. And I mean, we, we also, I would, I am desperate to hear Gregor's view on the defending for that winning goal for Sheffield United. Because I, I genuinely don't think it's extreme of me to say as a fan of the Football League that I've seen better defending in League Two than that goal from Manchester United. I mean, what on earth they were doing, I've no idea. Sheffield United, you could tell they had the ball and it only, only when it finally got back to Oli Burke and he thought, right, sod this, if they're not going to tackle me, I'm going to have a shot. Sheffield United were almost playing for, to just keep, keep the ball. It was mental. Absolutely mental. I've never seen anything like it in the Premier League. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't think it matters what level you're you're uh, you're playing at or watching football. If someone doesn't show the kind of willingness to close down the opponent, then it, you know it's not defending. Essentially, it all looked like kind of pretend defending. You know, they were they were all like arms behind their backs, kind of shuffling out towards, uh, just like looking like you're doing your job. But there was about five five players doing the same 
within like I don't know a forty yard square area, and Sheffield United just kept the ball just kept coming back to them, and they were like, "Well, we've got another chance." And then <laughs> it was just it was bizarre. It looked it did look kind of you know everyone. It's easy to say look they looked tired there, but it was more than that. I think they were kind of as you say that it seemed to be a bit of complacency, and they were Man United had been knocking at the door for so long. Uh, even a little break up the pitch it didn't look like Sheffield United really had the kind of guile to open them up or to to break them down. And I suppose there was a little bit of luck in that you know there was a half clearance and then Burke got a second chance. But how many chances did they have to give them before someone closed them down? And you know people some of the analysis after the game was about focusing a bit on you know Martial not tracking back or but for me it was Pogba and, and Fernandez who were kind of standing in the vicinity doing nothing and then also the defender it, I think it was Twanzebe was it just not coming out to the ball he was stand, standing on his, his six yard box and Tellez no was there, there as well didn't close it down had his arms behind his back even though he was standing five yards wide of the post it was incredible Matic did the same Hugh you must have been screaming at the TV surely pathetic absolutely pathetic absolutely pathetic firstly Harry Maguire plays a two yard ball back to his goalkeeper with his back to the rest of the play instead of just knocking it off for a corner. De Gea then passes it out to a Sheffield United player instead of just knocking it off for a corner. Tellez doesn't close the player down. Pogba doesn't close the player down. Martial is walking even though he's six yards away from the ball. Oli Burke is standing 10 yards away from the goal, controls it, suddenly realises that no one's going to close him down, so he might as well just swing his right boot at it. And he gets deflected off Tuan Zabi in off the crossbar. And Tuan Zabi, who has been backing and backing away from the whole situation the whole time, getting closer and closer to the goal, is the reason that he deflects it in, because he's, he's in line with the goalkeeper and he's too close to the goalkeeper. All round, it smacked of not just complacency. I wouldn't even call it tiredness. That is just... Plain and simple, not doing your job, not doing what you get paid for, you know, and, and Martial lost the ball higher up the pitch. Matic had run past the ball into Martial. Then for some reason, don't know what his job is, ran beyond Anthony Martial to try and get a second ball. He was crowded out by three players and everyone, when Manchester United lost the ball, basically walked back, which smacked of they're not going to score even that, if, even if we don't it. do our job. That's, that's it. That's what the com- complacency is. It's you think you're going to get away with it. You don't actually have to go that extra two yards to close the, the man down because even if they throw it in the box, they're not going to score. That was the attitude. That's what that kind of smacked of and they were wrong. It's just slightly unfortunate for Solskjaer and I do slightly feel sorry for him despite the fact that I've been slagging him off for so long in that even in this season when they've been doing so well, this is the second or third time where you have some pretty farcical defending that you can attach to his tenure. You know, you had the Istanbul game in the Champions League, every single player up the pitch. You know, we live in this age of little videos on social media or screen grabs of pictures or, you know, the video of the incident last night was doing the rounds. And that gets attached to to his to his reign. And it, it is unfortunate for him because you don't you don't see that in other top clubs like I can't think of that happening at Leicester I think it's about individuals though I honestly do I think that I know you, you can be at risk of being cast as a dinosaur or an old football man here but it's about someone in Manchester United's team not accepting that when they see it and we've talked about we've talked about their defence and, and stuff in the past and they, they look at Maguire as the leader he's not 
he's not a leader of a of a team like Manchester United, and I don't see who is. And then, as I say, you can say this is an easy thing to say, but it makes a difference if you had if you have a, a centre half who is. Or, or a midfielder, anyone, someone, it's easy again to go back into Manchester United's lineage and pick someone out. But anyone who is a guaranteed kind of seven or eight out of ten every single week and is just not going to accept that and is going to pull people around and give them a rocket. I don't think, you know, if, if that happens after the first mistake, then the second mistake doesn't happen or someone does close down that extra two or three yards. So it does matter. That leadership does matter. And I think that was a moment where you saw that they don't really have it still at the kind of most important moments or when they're low, when they're at their lowest. I, I totally agree with you. Last night I watched that game and I was just desperate for a Roy Keane type character to be out on the pitch who would have been publicly pointing fingers and screaming in faces over people not closing down, over the goalkeeper not putting it, the ball into the Rosehead. You know, and, and that's what you need. Like that, that is not even talent. That is that is attitude. And you don't have to be a top player. You don't have to be a top player to have the right attitude. And there were too many players in that situation, at least, who didn't approach the situation with the right attitude. The truth is that not everyone has that attitude, though. So that's why it's rare. You know, and that's why Manchester United, you're looking, looking across one of the, the biggest teams in European football and we're not really seeing someone like that. There's people who step up in moments like Fernandez or Pogba has recently, but there's not, there, there isn't really someone with that aura. And I don't, I think that is, I still think that is going to be a hindrance for, for United. You even looked at Maguire's reaction to that. And I'm not having a go at Maguire for this, but he kind of smacked his hand and, and started to walk off up the pitch. It was like a show of like outrage, but not towards anyone. He, he wasn't, he didn't dare say it to the people who weren't closing down. He wasn't pulling them up. <laughs> he just kind of stormed off and looked angry about it. I think in, in a moment like that, but it was so shambolic, there's nothing wrong with saying, look, that's not good enough. I completely agree with 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 all of everything everything you've said. Um, uh, they should have been well ahead already, shouldn't they? Uh, I kind of watched that that first half, and they should have been well ahead with the amount of chances. And it was interesting because I kind of thought they're missing Edison Cavani here. That was that was my thought watching the first half that they're missing Edison Cavani, and we've spoken about the impact he's had on that team since he's joined. Problem with watching United is that they always seem that one player away from from being a Premier League title winner again. I remember Jamie Carragher saying at the beginning of the season when there was talk of Jadon Sancho that with Bruno Fernandes now, they're that one player away from being a Premier League title winner. And But the problem is a, 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 a title winning team doesn't have that sort of mindset. I mean, you look at when when City City lost all those players to COVID and they played Chelsea, um, I think it was beginning of this month, and they just swept them aside and they were missing all so many of their key players. They had De Bruyne playing false nine, which isn't which is still a luxury having De Bruyne in that position, but they adapted and they still managed to do it. Whereas United always seemed that one player away. De Bruyne is is that kind of player. I remember the when when the City played Real Madrid last last season, and he tore strips out of Benjamin Mendy in the first half because he kept giving the ball away and he was really sloppy. And you've seen him sometimes come come off the pitch and you're screaming. At you. He is he's he looks like a moody get sometimes, but he's someone in your team who raises standards, not just because of the way he performs, but because of what he demands from everyone else around him. So you know. 
it doesn't it's not just like an old school figure of a a meathead centre half that's kind of you know the old traditional English caricature or that kind of thing. It's just someone who demands the highest standards of those around them. Tom, it's Arsenal away next at the weekend uh, for Manchester United, then home games with Southampton and Everton in the league before West Ham in the FA Cup. Looking ahead to the game at the Emirates this weekend, will United be the favourites, do you think? No, no, not necessarily. Um, I think with Arsenal's momentum, it changes things, doesn't it? Um, I think, and and yesterday changes things totally. Uh, So, you know, Arsenal are a totally different proposition now. um, And they also have that burden of of, um, the record at Old Trafford off their back from earlier in the season, which was before the complete drop in form. And they're a team who, who... who, who have total momentum on their side. Um, you know, Odegaard's joined and brought brought a... Um, am I saying that right, Hugh? Um, <laughs> and has brought... A, brought Hopefully will bring an element of creativity there, but they've got it with the kids in Saka and Emil Smith-Rowe and Martinelli. Um, and if they play, if United play like they did against Sheffield United, then, then they won't. Uh, they won't. They won't win. They just won't win. They'll be punished. Um, I think at the same time, United won't treat Arsenal in the same way they did last night. Uh, as Gregor said, it was watching them was like they're not going to score. That was the mindset that seemed to be there. They're not going to score. Arsenal are unbeaten in six Premier League games. They won at Southampton on Tuesday. Tom Clark. Do you think Mikel Arteta is confident going into a game against Manchester United, especially after that win earlier in the season? I think he can definitely be confident, yeah. It's it's one of my favourite words on this podcast, talking about narrative, but Arteta has had had such a low moment in this season that the attention was pulled off him slightly. And now this, you know, beating Southampton is no no easy feat this season. That, That win almost went a little bit under the radar. There was a kind of, you know, almost... Oh, Arsenal will be in Southampton. Like that was a that's an impressive result, an impressive performance. So I think he can be very confident because the pressure's completely off him. And I would I would just say quickly on Manchester United that this game is huge now because Johnny has been on this podcast talking before about um Solskjaer and motivational tactics and you do feel like they're a they're a momentum team. And, you know, I talked before about the, those one goal wins during the season you just and the people were starting to talk about oh the Manchester United way they've done it again they've got a goal they've found a way to win etc it's going to be huge now as to whether this game knocks them off that course or whether as Greg has often said this you know cyclical effect of Manchester United they have the dip then they come back again then they have the dip then they come back so this game is huge for Manchester United and that can only help Arsenal and Mikel Arteta who all, all the signs are good, aren't they? Be, as I say, I really think beating Southampton is is not something to be sniffed at. No, especially after going out of the FA Cup to them and their fans not being very happy. Their fans will be absolutely delighted if they win El Twitterco at the weekend against Manchester United. Uh, that's what it's being dubbed on social media, at least. Uh, let's move uh, not far across London uh, to big, big rivals of Arsenal. Let's call them that. Chelsea, they've got a new manager. Yeah, that's right. Arteta outlasted Frank Lampard. Thomas Tuchel in 
the dugout for them now at Stamford Bridge. Uh, for the first time on Wednesday, as Chelsea and Wolves played out a goalless draw. Now, Chelsea looked a different side. We'll talk tactics in a moment. But first, Thomas Tuchel took a bit of a sledgehammer to some of Chelsea's youngsters. Mason Mount, who was captain under Lampard at the weekend in the FA Cup, was benched, as was Reese James and Tammy Abraham. Young Scott Billy Gilmore wasn't even in the squad. Tom Roddy, you've, you've written about this change at Chelsea in the game this week. Is it going to be a bit of a culture shock for those Chelsea players under Thomas Tuchel? Yeah, it will. It will. Uh, I mean, you said about speaking about tactics later, but there, I think that will be a big thing which will change there. I mean, everything we hear about Tuchel is, is what, you know, he's almost like the second coming of, of Wenger in a way with this obsession with football and this adaptability and tactics, which which interests me a little bit last night. You know, they take on a Wolves side who play three at the back and, and Chelsea play three at the back. He decides to play three at the back. Um, but it will be it will be a big culture shock. I mean, it, it, the one of the things coming out of Chelsea about the decision of picking Tuchel was this idea that part of his reputation is developing young players. Um, the understandable but possibly lazy look on the on the on the appointment was Thomas Tuchel's German. Chelsea want Kai Havertz and Timo Werner to start going, you know, the German lads at Chelsea and and this is the guy they get in. And it's and it's it's understandable because they also looked at Ralph Ranić and also Julian Nagelsmann. But at the same time he's worked with Thiago Silva and he's also worked with Christian Pulisic. But last night was a big indication of where he's going to go. It's it's difficult to read too much into it, but um it's that it's that typical trick that a lot of managers do when they replace replace someone. They bring in the disaffected players, and they're given an opportunity. Um, we saw Mount had played the last ten games under started the last ten games under Lampard, and and he comes on and he does he does change the game. Um, but it's it's going to affect their their kids. I mean, I think. Billy Gilmore is almost certainly going to go out on loan now. It's going to be an interesting one with him, the young Scott Billy Gilmore, Gregor. Um, I, I know you'd like to see him play a bit of football. I was tweeting last night, I'd like Ed Woodward to put a, put a bid in for him. He's got a massive future. Maybe I'm putting too much pressure on him, though. We'll talk about some young stars uh, a little bit later on. Um, but, Tom Clark, it does feel like that class of of 19, if you like, um, looks at risk of being broken up over the next couple of years at Chelsea already. Do you think Chelsea fans would accept it if the likes of, of Abraham are pushed out and Reese James? I, I don't necessarily agree that they. it is the end of that that particular class of, you know, that group of players. I, I, I think um, the thing Tuchel wants to do first is get his system and his tactics in place. And that was the thing that a lot of people, myself included, were most critical of Frank Lampard for, was that you watched Chelsea and you weren't sure what they were about tactically on the pitch. You did The system changed all the time. And fine, it was a nil-nil draw. There was some, I thought, strange punditry on Match of the Day last night talking about, oh, it was this is not how Chelsea want to play. And you're like, well, hang on a minute, he's only just arrived. We don't know how Chelsea want to play yet because Tuchel's only just got here. What struck me was that he picked a system and the team and players that fit that system. And it made sense. You know, I looked at it and I watched it and I thought, okay, I get it. Yeah. Wing backs, experienced back three, holding midfielders, 
place for Kai Havertz to find space in the pockets, you know, in a forward area. That's fine. It makes sense. But I don't necessarily think that we should write off that whole group of young players yet. I'm not saying write them off, but what I'm saying is it was clear that Frank Lampard had put a lot of faith in those young English players and it was clear he was going to lean towards them. And it, it, it becomes apparent that, that Thomas Tuchel isn't the sort of manager who's going to have any favourites, really. And I think that that may be an allegation that was put towards Lampard. Yeah, I think so. And that obviously became part of Lampard's um, tenure. And a big, big selling point was that he was giving these kids a chance. But as we alluded to on the previous show, part of the reason for him giving those kids a chance was that when he took over, there was a transfer ban. And so it was easy for him to develop that narrative as the guy who gives... Tammy Abraham a chance because he couldn't sign a striker. So I, I, I genuinely think, as Tom says, Tuchel's got a good record with young players. If Reese James and Tammy Abraham are good enough for his system and for his team, that I think they'll play. And I think ultimately, to go back to your earlier question, it comes back to my favourite point about football, which is that it's about winning games. And so and nowhere is that more important or apparent than at Chelsea, particularly when they've spent all that money. And so if he gets a team, you know, that has both Kai Havertz and Thiago Silva and Jorginho and Kante playing well and winning, then if Billy Gilmore falls by the wayside, they'll they'll accept it. I think the whole, it's something that Tuchel probably, you know, he wants to get a good start because I agree. I don't think he's, you know, this spells the end for these, for these young kids, these Chelsea kids as they're uh, so often described, despite the fact that I was reading Havertz and Pulisic are younger than Mount and Abraham. So because they're not through the academy, we sort of discount that, or perhaps because they're foreign. But this is the discussion already. After 90 minutes of football and one team selection, that's the discussion. And then there's also the whole thing about, I think, you know, the people had such a strange relationship with, with Frank. <laughs> you know, the pundit, most of the pundits were his best friend. Um... Or his cousin. Sway- yeah, <laughs> Swedes of the media are kind of, I think even even though a lot of people deep down were aware that he's not really qualified for the job, I think a lot of people wanted him to be a success. And now that he's gone, you know, I think Tuchel's probably not going to get that much leeway. It's like this guy who's the the sort of arch intellect <laughs> from, you know, a kind of professorial kind of character. Uh, they want to see the proof of that on the on the pitch and what they definitely don't want to see is any kind of semblance of Sari ball as well. The one thing I would say as well is that, you know, Tuchel, last night he was saying this is the most unfair lineup I've ever named because I joined last night and took a training session and I'm in the dugout 24 hours later, which, yeah, that's fair enough. But Tuchel was uh, approached for this job almost a month ago, he he is this kind of obsessive of football. He'll have watched all the games that Chelsea have played recently. He'll have watched back all the games. He'll know the potential of Billy Gilmore. He'll know the potential of Tammy Abraham. He'll know the potential of Christian Pulisic. Um, so, they're, they're, it's you know, you get to see and understand a player more on the training pitch and one-to-one, but we can still take indications from that team selection. Mason Mount is good enough. I mean, he's in fact, he should be in that team, no matter who they are, where they're from, how much they cost. He's proved this season. He's probably been Chelsea's best player this season. So I would back him to whoever's in charge to show that. And I would probably say the same of Reese James, although there is some 
issues about his defending sometimes. But uh, brilliant player, yeah. So I think I think they Abraham, you know, who when you're a striker at Chelsea, you're always going to have some pretty um, steep competition. So he'll have a difficult difficult task, perhaps. But I would certainly not say that these guys are going to be discounted and they're good enough to be in the team. So it's up to him to show it. I've got to say, I think Tom Roddy, you're right as well in terms of Tuchel knowing what he was going to play because that was not the formation or the approach of a manager who hadn't had things planned for quite some time. He didn't jot that on the back of a cigarette packet after that training session. Chelsea had 78.9% possession. That is the most by a new manager in their first game in the past 17 years in the Premier League. We mentioned the wing-backs, Chilwell, Callum Hudson-Odoi, Kovacic and Jorginho in central midfield Kai Havertz got 90 minutes as well unbelievably Uh, but Chelsea only created five shots on target for all of that joy there was a a a lack of I guess incisive football Um, they they were they played a little bit too safely and and that will come over time I think are we going to get used to seeing Tom Clark do you think we're going to get used to seeing this formation in every game for Chelsea? I'm not sure. And I'm, I'm as a bit of a tactical geek, I'm quite excited about it because I think Tuchel might be someone who will use this for a month. And then perhaps once he's seen the, you know, some of the other players in training might switch it up again. But as Tom said, he's clearly someone who's absolutely obsessed with football and his systems and his formations. So I think we're going to see some really interesting uh, interesting things from him but I, and again I, maybe this is partly to do with the you know everyone loving Frank and quite keen to uh, pour a little bit of scorn on Tuchel but you know last night he he said something about I think he said something about 16 recoveries in the final third of the pit and people were saying oh well well done that's just what you want but that is just what you want hold on a minute you said that football was not an entertainment business. It was a results business. And now you're saying 16 recoveries is better than scoring one goal. No, let me finish for a start. Having spent 20 minutes talking about Anthony Marshall not tracking back or defending. Anyway, that's a good point in modern football. And I don't. And so if Tuchel is going to start with 16 recoveries in the final third and loads of possession and 90 minutes for Kai Havertz, he will start with that and build from there. And maybe the formation will adapt, but he's, he's going to get those you know, foundations in place first. And I think you know, being disparaging about loads of possession, but no shots, it's his first game. Like, you know, let's give the guy a chance. I'm excited to see what he can do. Because I think, you know, you just said it there as well. Callum Hudson-Odoi is someone that Lampard didn't play that often and is someone that Chelsea were desperate to keep out of Bayern Munich's clutches and he gets a chance. And there was a great moment talking about effort and tracking back where I think Hudson-Odoi sprinted half the length of the pitch to stop, was it Dendonka for Wolves getting in uh, at the back post and cleared the ball. So I, I think I think it's going to be really interesting. And I think 16 recoveries in the final third, whether you like anti-football or attractive, attractive football, is, is a good start for me. Hudson-Odoi was brilliant and played for parts of the match at both right and left wing back showing his uh, versatility as well. And talking about effort, he certainly did put it in and and was man of the match for both the broadcasters, I think, uh, and us radio guys as well. Chelsea face Burnley at the weekend in the Premier League. We'll discuss Sean Dyche's side next on the game podcast. But you can read Henry Winter right now in The Times claiming the clock is already ticking for Thomas Tuchel after a limp 
opener. That's in the Times right now. Remember, uh, you can get more of our award-winning journalism subscribing to the Times and the Sunday Times across all of your devices. Sign up today and you'll get yourself one month free. Just search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Up next on the game podcast, well, I've got to say, I think Aston Villa were marginally the better side at Turf Moor for me. But it doesn't really matter to Sean Dyche's Burnley. They burst the Villa bubble with a 3-2 win. An exciting game, to be perfectly honest. It was the first time Burnley have scored three goals in the Premier League since February the 22nd of last year. Burnley coming from behind twice. They are now nine points above the relegation zone. And once again, Tom Clark defying expectations. I just love them. They're just great. In the modern, you know, in modern football with managers changing all the time, in this strange and crazy world we live in, Sean Dyche's Burnley are just a reliable, you know, modicum of consistency that um, we can all rely on. I, that it was, you're right, it was a fantastic game. And were it not for the shock upset at Old Trafford, it, I think it would probably have been the first time Burnley had been first on match of the day. Uh, it, it was great to see. Villa, as you say, deserve a lot of credit because they were brilliant as well. I mean, Jack Grealish nearly scored one of the goals of the you know decade with that run down the left wing and then uh, the shot in the in the second half. But um, I, I just think Sean Dyche deserves so much credit because every season there seems to be a bit of discussion around, oh, well, this will be the season Burnley go down. And they might still go down this season. But it's the fact that they book that trend all the time. They seem to do it even if they lose players. You know, Eric Peters has come in at left back for the last few games ahead of Charlie Taylor. Charlie Taylor's probably one of their best players, most important players, overlapping at left back, getting crosses into the box. You know, Eric Peters signed from Stoke. People are like, oh, why do you, why are you signing Eric Peters? He's been brilliant at left back. Um, I've said what a big fan I am of Tarkovsky and me in central defence. But they've also got they have got good good creative players as well. Ashley Westwood in midfield. Dwight McNeil is a fantastic player, young player as well. 
and someone who I think will probably benefit greatly later on in his career from having been in a Dyche Burnley team. And I just think they're a great they're a great contrast in modern football to a lot of the other teams that we see. And they produce they the way they play produces great games like last night. Games for people like you, Hugh, the people who want entertainment, want want end to end. They, they help produce that because they're overlapping, whipping crosses into the box and Villa are trying to pass it around them and score fantastic goals. Because Grealish, the goal Grealish did score was also a brilliant goal, brilliant passing and moving goal, which is how you need to play to get past Burnley. You need to zip it about quick and you need to you know, get, get players in the box to try and get past their stoic and stubborn, stubborn defence. They're, they're brilliant. Uh, the, the longer they stay in the Premier League, the more entertainment people like you will be able to enjoy, Hugh, I'm sure. <laughs> no, listen, I, I, love, I love teams like Chris Wilder's Sheffield United. I love teams like Sean Dyche's Burnley because that's part of, I think that is part of our game in terms of application. And that is why people say, oh, it's the toughest league in the world because we have teams who go out there and even if we they are perceived as not having the quality of other sides, you know, the teams at the bottom of our leagues are working their socks off every single game and they're very well coached and organised and they play a massive part in the quality of, of the game in this country. So uh, nothing against sides like Burnley and fully love watching their games. I can't believe that you're, you're implying that I don't. Um, it's also the sort of game I think that Sean Dice loves to win so that he can go into his press conference afterwards and say, well, they spent 200 million quid and in his words, we've spent a bag of chips <laughs> now that might be a message to the new owners Gregor I don't know uh, what do you think about uh, the, the fact that they haven't spent that much money they continue to produce because I think in a way it helps the stability of the team and that's what I wanted to highlight you know the fact that you don't have loads of money means that you don't have the squad changing so much and if the squad doesn't change so much the players get to know one another you build that team spirit and everyone knows their jobs and I just wondered if you thought that that consistency helps you know the manager's been there a long time too Absolutely, and and Dyche, Dyche said that after the game. In fact, he said one benefit of having been here so long and worked with the players so long is that I know what they're about, and I knew that you know I would get a reaction in the second half if I kind of made it clear that we needed one, and I'm sure he did. Because let's be honest, I actually I'm not sure how Villa didn't win this game. The amount of chances and they, they were superb in the first half, um, but they did get their, that reaction. And as you say, it's kind of they were just far more on the front foot um, you know in the first half it was like they were camped in their own box and, and Grealish is so hard to play against because everybody gets, everyone, so many players get drawn to him and it creates space for others that's how Target was kind of slotted in on the left and the cross came in for the first goal and really that's what happened for his goal too everyone was drawn to him he played a 1-2 and, and that was a goal so I think but the, the main thing they did was they were just far more on the front foot, far more aggressive. And that's what we, we kind of recognise as Burnley. And they just kept chucking crosses in the box as well. And that what a header it was as well. Two headers. Wood's header is amazing as well. Mee's header as well. That was such a classic. When you watched it, he seemed to be coming in the air for about 10 seconds. It was like <laughs> slow-mo. You could see him coming from the edge of the box. Michael Jordan no. scoring headers at Turf Moor. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. They've got some good routines as well, Burnley. Remember they did one, I can't remember what it was, a few weeks back where they kind of double teamed. Uh, it's like Tarkovsky kind of is almost the man that me jumps over and leans on. <laughs> it's like their t- tag team. Um but Wood's header was just remarkable. It was, you know, he was running backwards away from goal and 
he must have been what twelve yards out or something as well, and just kind of directed it into the corner with just enough power to 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 get past Martinez. And yeah, I mean, as I say, I, I think Villa have been a game that Villa is playing, and is a game you you like to watch as well because they really are very entertaining. They've got so much creativity, and as I say, in the first half, they were they should have really been out of sight, as Dean Smith said, but. Dyke said he knows that he can get a reaction from his players and they certainly did get that in the second half and there's no chance Burnley are going down. I think, you know, Tom, you saying that, they might, that may happen this season. They just, they're too effective and they're undoubtedly going to be five or six teams worse than them in the Premier League this season. There's still a question mark though over the manager's future, not because of what he's producing at the moment, but because we didn't really talk about it on the podcast. There was a, a takeover at Burnley in December, the American investment group ALK Capital. The owner, the new owner, has promised a unique approach, which might be by spending no, no money, which would be a pretty unique approach in the Premier League. Who knows? But Tom Roddy, do you think if they, they're one of those types of owners that have lofty ambitions, that despite it maybe coming across as a bit insane, they might move away from Sean Dyche? Not, not in the short term, no. And I mean, it would be absolute madness to do that because he is he is one of the real miracle workers of the Premier League. I mean, you, you mentioned that quote, Hugh, about spending a bag of chips and the, in the summer and the, um, that Sean Dyche does like to compare how much his team has spent compared to, to other teams. But it's true. It, it's inescapably true. I mean, I think, was it Dale Stevens was their biggest buy of, of the summer from, from Brighton and that was a million, one and a half million. And he'd come to Brighton. He, he wasn't a first team player in Brighton. He'd gone to Brighton from Charlton Athletic in when they were in League One. I mean, this and this isn't a criticism of Dale Stevens. It's just context around a Sean Dyche, what Sean Dyche has got to work with, and what he. The thing is, it's what he gets out of a team because I thought it, it that moment, and I don't want to talk about Man United again, but that moment that we that Tom and Gregor spoke about um, with Man United's defending, I watched that and thought. That does ne- that do- that will never ever happen at Burnley. That will never happen in a Sean Dyche team. Anthony Martial doesn't get into a Sean Dyche team. Paul Pogba probably doesn't get into a, into a Sean Dyche team. And that this is nothing to do with Man United. It's just to do with that moment and the way in which Burnley and Sean Dyche play and what their ethos is. Burnley are quite unique though in that. Even, you know, they might have allowed the... Sorry to compare this to my United again. They might have allowed the cross in, but my God, they would have got a block on. You wouldn't have seen Twan Zebi kind of standing in the six-yard box. They would... They, they you know, they could consistently have the most blocks of any team in the, in the Premier League. They are, as I'm saying, they're quite unique in that they know they can defend crosses. They know they can defend their kind of six, 12-yard box, that area just in front of the goal. They can defend that for their lives, and that a lot of that is because of me and, and Tar- Tarkovsky. Um, but the thing that will also be interesting after the takeover is the the direction of the recruitment. You know, I think they they're quite heavily into analytics and be interested. You know, there's a very British uh, kind of foundation to to Sean Dyche's team, and you look. You know, Josh Brownell is another one. He'll use nine million. That's still in Premier League terms. Peanuts. He's from Bristol City. He took a while to get in the team. Now he's an absolute fixture in midfield alongside Ashley Westwood. Another kind of typical example of 
picking a player who's one of the best in the championship. So whether he's kind of afforded to do that a little bit more or slightly raise the ceiling of the of the value of these players will be interesting. But if it's a case of casting the, the net wider, you know, that that's something that can potentially change the, the ethos of the, the team and the makeup and the dynamics. So that will be interesting going forward to see how much sway Sean Dyke still holds over, you know, the direction of like how they aim to progress, basically. Interesting to see, having scored only nine goals before last night, that's now up to, to 12 all season. Uh, they've been bidding for Stoke City defender Nathan Collins. Uh, they need a central defender, clearly, uh, at uh, at Burnley, which, of course, pretty much sums up uh, Sean Dyche's uh, approach to recruitment, but it, it clearly does work. Um, Tom Roddy, Chelsea versus Burnley at the weekend maybe a Burnley 1-0 is probably the most predictable scoreline, is it? I remember, Hugh, it was this time last week I was on the podcast and saying that Frank Lampard had Luton, Wolves and Burnley, three winnable games to turn around the momentum. Now you're looking at Thomas Tuchel having a bit of an underwhelming draw last night and going to Burnley and having a real shock of, of experiencing English football. Um, yeah, I, I, this is going to be really hard for them. Uh, Tom Clark, what do you think? It'll be very difficult. But as, as we said with the Tuchel uh, analysis earlier, we don't quite know what he is about just yet. And I wouldn't be surprised if someone that is as, as obsessed and as focused on planning as Tom alluded to earlier, whether he has a completely different plan in store for Burnley. Maybe it's he's going to use his first three games, try a couple of different systems and formations and see what works. But it'll be incredibly difficult. One thing, just to go back to the recruitment, I would be. it's interesting how our conversation is all couched in the idea that the Burnley way and Sean Dyche, it has to be cheaper, you know, British players maybe and whether it'll be fascinating to see whether they can keep Sean Dyche, keep the Burnley way and maybe spend 15 million quid on a on a right back because there's no there's no reason you can't buy a fullback who works really hard and his crosses are slightly better than the one you've got already and still fit that idea it'll be interesting to see whether they go down that route or whether Dyche resists it but um yeah, to go back to your question, it'll be a very difficult, difficult game. But I'm, I'd be, I'd, I won't be surprised to see Tuchel throw a completely different formation system and selection at Burnley. Gregor, you were grinning a, a second ago. Was it a ridiculous question? No, 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 no. I was just thinking more about. I'm not. I'm not saying that Sean Dyche is going to resist kind of casting the net wider. It's just that that's the that's the kind of conditions under which he's worked for so long. It's actually similar to to Chris Wilder. This kind of thing was. You know, he he's he's always come up from from lower leagues in England, and that's where the players he knows. And then they've tried to kind of broaden their horizon a bit this year, and the recruitment hasn't really worked. So it's a difficult transition that you know you've you you know one thing, you know one way, and I'm, he's, Sean Dyche is an intelligent enough guy to to change that or to change it gradually. But it's just going to be interesting to see um, how much control he has over that. I think, um, but for for. Looking forward to this weekend. I mean, yeah, Tuchel, welcome to the. You know, everyone thinks the the Premier League's this kind of mad and 
mad intensity and he's going to be the first two games our team's basically sitting on their own six yard box uh, <laughs> to come and break us down and have 90% of the ball and if, <laughs> good luck if you can break them down again yeah slight difference to Liga I think it's a little bit more difficult to break down those teams uh, certainly at the bottom of the table but um, Sean Dice versus Thomas Tuchel is going to be interesting both the pre and post match uh, press conferences and interviews as well from those two characters looking forward to another big game in the Premier League of course it's a big game Game to start the Arsenal career of Martin Odegaard, Odegaard if you like. Uh, listen, it's not it's not just me. I'll, I'll play you what he himself says, and you'll get an indication as to the pronunciation. Have a listen. Hi, my name is Martin Odegaard, but you can call me Martin Odegaard. Very difficult. Look, he's smiling, he's happy, he's delighted to be in the Premier League and in London. He's arrived the 22-year-old Norwegian at Norway International, no less, on loan from Real Madrid. It's his fourth loan, though, since signing for Real Madrid as a 15-year-old starlet, a wonder kid, and annoyingly already in um, Mikel Arteta's press conference, um, he's been asked about Martin Erdegaard in reference to him being compared to the next Messi, which of course shows you the sort of expectation that young wonder kids have been put under. He's 22 years old now. He's clearly not the next Messi, yet the questions still come in. And Mikel Arteta said, I wouldn't even suggest anyone could get close to Messi because it's a lost battle, in my opinion. But Martin is Martin. I think the last few seasons he's progressed and developed in the right way. I followed him very closely because he played for Real Sociedad, which is my hometown. I know him really well. I've been really impressed. He's such a talent. He just needs the right environment and a little bit of more time but I think he has the qualities to be a success for us and now there was a lot of pressure and expectation at Arsenal generally for new signings but of course someone whose name has floated around world and European football as being the next big thing for such a long time will have extra pressure on him particularly as he's he's hit this point in his, in his career where he is starting to play um, quite well but in many ways it's a difficult position for any player to be in where your career is more potential and expectation than it is substance. Um, because, of course, people are waiting for you to fulfil what they think you should be. Um, Tom Clark, maybe you should start us off on this because there are, there are a raft of players we could discuss as having been through this sort of experience. There certainly are. We were thinking about this topic before the show and talking about Erdegaard. I'm going to go with his second pronunciation as he's given me the choice. Uh, I'm going to go with his second one. What a lovely bloke he sounds like, by the way. Such a such a friendly guy. Um, uh, and it, it, what struck me, I was looking at players similar to to Erdegaard who, who kind of burst onto the scene very young, and you realise how many of them, you know, we can name and think about who who didn't, as you say, make it as they were supposed to. Um, Theo Walcott is a it's for me a classic example of someone who was not ruined by the start of his career but he was picked for a world cup having barely played a minute as this you know prodigal super quick forward and you know then went to arsenal had a pretty successful career at arsenal as an arsenal player playing at the top level and yet there were always these questions about him what is he is he a striker is he a winger is he good enough has he fulfilled his potential and it was all couched in the fact that he reached you know, was picked for the England team by Sven Goran Eriksson to go to a World Cup and never played. And there's a there's a raft of them, and I just found it fascinating. And it, it actually made me, looking through them, appreciate players like Wayne Rooney even more, because and I was discussing this with a 
group of friends and one of them said that whoever, I forget who the commentator was, but when he scored that goal against Arsenal, remember the name Wayne Rooney. How often a commentator might have said, remember the name and inserted the name of someone who happened to have scored a goal age 17 and then no one remembers the name because he never did anything. And so the fact to burst onto the scene as any young player is is great and impressive. To sustain the career you're then expected to have is seriously, seriously impressive. And I just hope with Erdegaard, Arsenal fans don't, they just allow him to be, and they, they obviously won't, I'm being a dreamer, but, you know, allow him to see... To, to be the player he is now, not the player people thought he was going to be when he was 15. I think Clive Tilsley was the man that, that shouted the words, remember the name Wayne Rooney. But I, but when Rooney retired recently from football, I think it was something that I, that I mentioned that there are very few players who live up to all of the expectation. You know, all the things that were said about him when he, when he burst onto the scene. He's going to be a future England captain. You know, he should be playing for the likes of Manchester United. When he got there, he's going to be a future record goal scorer for both England and Manchester United. And he ticked off every single box. And by the way, with a lot of scrutiny, with a lot of pressure, you know, every single thing he did, even remotely out of place in his career, was magnified massively. And I think he was still towards the latter end of that um, that era of media scrutiny that the likes of Beckham had, had felt during their careers as well. I think it's slightly changed now with social media and players being able to shape the narrative around themselves a little bit, a little bit more. But I think that was a huge portion of, of Rooney's career. And there are, there are so many. Jack Wilshere scored in the FA Cup at the weekend, you know, for Bournemouth. And I think people will see his career as being very flat and, and a failure because he was meant to be the next great thing for Arsenal. He had the number 10 shirt there. You know, he was meant to be the one playing for England and, and winning trophies. And, and you know, I, I find it difficult because, look, we, we see a young player burst onto the scene. We do put a lot of expectation on them. Clearly, there are a lot of great young talents that come out of this country, especially but there are huge factors around whether players can make a success of themselves. And it's, it, I think Mikel Arteta's right. It is about environment. Gregor, the environment of a football club for a young player. What is, what is that like? Because there are so many players talk about the daunting experience. They talk about the players who don't make a club welcome, who don't want a young player to take their place. You know, all these things that can affect you know, a, a player who maybe left school when he was 14 or 15 years old to join an academy? I mean, there are so many, so many factors and that decide whether a player is going to kind of fulfil the potential. And a lot of them are, as you say, external. It could be changes in manager. It could be, you know, being afforded the opportunities that you thought you were going to get in the, at the outset. But when you're talking about players of this level and this kind of talent, then I don't know. I think generally it's it, it's down to them. I think it's down to their kind of confidence, their development. That that period between kind of 16 and 20 is probably the most important period in a footballer's career. And I'll, there's, there's a, you know, I've played played with and against a few players in this kind of category. I remember playing against uh, Freddie Adu for DC United once on a pre-season tour with uh, with Nottingham Forest. And he was a huge name. And I, I think he probably would have been 14 or 15 or something at that time. I was looking back, I think that was 2004, and he's still only 31. Like, And, you know, a few years later, he was in his early 20s and he was already thought of as a flop. Like, just didn't, you know, he was so young and he didn't develop in the way that that was forecast. It's kind of, and as I say, a part of that's to do with, it can be to do with the development of your body, can do to do with 
dealing with it, coping with the scrutiny and the pressure and things like that, the psychological aspect of it. Um, so there are so many things go into it. But the other the other one that kind of was that I always remember, I played against Wayne Rooney in the FA Youth Cup. So that was a few months before he scored that goal. We played against Everton and he was just astonishing. Like this force of nature, 16 and you thought, I mean, wow. He just rattled the crossbar a few times. He scored a bicycle kick. He was a joke. And after the game, our manager said, our manager was John Pemberton. He said, he's the next Alan Shearer. I remember him saying that vividly. And then what was also interesting, and I remember him saying, was that he picked our best player. It was a guy called Craig Westcar, who played with Rooney in England teams, who was who went on to be Forrest's youngest ever player at 16. And he said to Westy, he said, do you think Rooney's better than you? And the fact that he was asking that question tells you what how highly everyone thought of Greg Westcar. And in the next few years, their careers just went in completely different directions. Bruni obviously scored that goal, playing for Man United. Westy stayed at Forest for, he played a good number of, of games, but never really held down a place. And he played in, I played with him at Chesterfield later in our careers. He played in for Notts County, he played in the lower leagues. But at that age, at that moment in time, he was almost thought of on the same level as, as Rooney. And it's, there are so many reasons for that, for those different paths. And as I say, part of it is dealing with the with the pressure and, and part of it is, it's kind of keep, keeping the hunger. It's, I think once you get something so young, it's, keeping, it's maintaining, maintaining your hunger and your kind of desire to keep improving, I think, in that period from about 16 to 20. Because if you if you don't do that in that period, then you can lose a lot of what you've you were expecting you were going to get. Tom Roddy, can you think of some young starlets who um, I don't know who went either way? You know, great successes and, and made the best of it, or or just couldn't deliver to what the fans and the managers that had taught them up had, had expected. Yeah, yeah. I, I just wanted to to note though as well that as Gregor said, it's that that idea of the next is 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 such a a weight on young players' shoulders, isn't it? I mean, the idea of, of Rooney and uh, Gregor's manager saying the next Alan Shearer. We we hear that almost monthly when a player breaks onto the scene. I mean, even I was writing about Emil Smith-Rowe last week and um, he's been nicknamed the Croydon De Bruyne and I wasn't calling him it that, but but that is a... That is a, a, a big pressure and expectation to fulfil. Um, and I think even just thinking of examples, a lot of, so many players are called the next Messi now, aren't they? And Bojan, Bojan, years ago was, was the next Messi. He broke onto the scene at Barcelona and I think he scored 10 goals in his first season. And it wasn't so long ago he was, he was at Stoke. Um, someone who followed a similar path to Odegaard. It, 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 the beginning of the story was Royston Drenthe, who was uh, bro- did the same thing in in his native Holland. Um, moved to Real Madrid as a young young kid. It didn't work out, and I remember watching him play at the Medeski in for Reading in the Championship, and and he couldn't he he wasn't doing it there either. And and these are these are really they're, they're really sad stories about a lack of of, of potential, and they're, they're they're all different. Not a lack of potential, sorry, a lack of um, fulfilling that potential, and they're different stories as well because you know the the 
the one that really stands out as a, as a sad one is the guy before um, who filled the boots before Phil Foden, Michael Johnson at Manchester City. And of course, speaking about the way in which Rooney, you know, the amount of pressure that was on Rooney's shoulders, Michael Johnson was was called the next best thing by Sven Goran Eriksson. Yeah, he was City. called the next Steven Gerrard, wasn't he? Yeah. He was he was he was the guy coming through, and of course I, th- I think he was 24 when he retired, and it was because of the way in which his City career sort of fell off a cliff, and he ended up falling into depression. And he said that the I didn't have the skill set to handle all of that expectation and pressure, um, and they they are sad stories. He was a fantastic young player, really. Sad story from a football and personal perspective for him, and I hope he, he's well. There are so many necks, though. I mean, Phil Foden's the, the Stockport Iniesta now, isn't he? I think that's what he's called. And you, you wonder if his career, you know, I say Peter's out. If he ends up being a Premier League player for his whole career, but not winning loads of trophies and Champions Leagues, etc., people will say... He hasn't fulfilled his potential, you know, even if he has a, a top level career for his whole career. Fun- funnily enough, I spoke to um, Armin Traore, who came through at Arsenal uh, recently, who spoke about the pressures of the job and never really being able to cope with it. Um, of course, he went to Juventus on loan. He was at Portsmouth and QPR. And again, he was and you hear this a lot from former players, you know, they often say to you, particularly off air, that they never really did anything in football. And and it's a really sad thing to hear. And you're sitting there saying, kids dream of this, dream of even playing, you know, pulling on a QPR shirt or pulling on a Portsmouth shirt once. You know, what you've achieved in football to play for Arsenal, to play for Juventus, to play for these clubs in the Premier League, to have a 10-year career in the top flight and to play in the Championship as well is is definitely making it, you know, but the thing is, and I think what he explained back to me is you, you, you are taken into the mindset of you are going to be a superstar and you're, that's drilled into you. You know, he spoke about coming through the teams in France, the young under 16 teams they had in France. And then, I mean, it's just brilliant, brilliant players, many of whom have had massive careers. And he said, you're put into the mindset of having a top level career and winning world cups with France to the point that anything less then feels like a failure. And I wonder whether we just need to be a bit more measured with particularly the players who are at top clubs. Tom Clark. Yeah, I think you're definitely right. It's, it's, that's what struck me. It's either when researching this before, it's the extremes of the two. You have either the Wayne Rooney stories or you have uh, the Michael Johnson's very incredibly sad stories. It's the middle ground that I would like to find a little bit more of. Is if you're talking about bursting onto the scene for a big club, Federico Makeda as a 17-year-old coming on for Manchester United and doing a Cruyff turn and curling one into the top corner is about as good as it gets. I think he then scored the winner in the next game as well. But he then went on and played loan, loan spells at Cardiff and QPR. And I think uh, he's now at Panathinaikos. Uh, in Greece, but still playing, still playing football, and it's that it's that kind of middle ground. And uh, James Milner is another good example, a more successful example of a middle ground. Before anyone starts, he's obviously a fantastic player. But when he came onto the scene, I can remember people. I think he was just after Rooney. I think from memory came yeah, on the yeah, scene at Leeds, and people thought he was an attacking, you know, attacking midfielder, attacking winger. I think he scored early on in his career. And again, he's a good example of 
career changed, maybe didn't push through early enough, early, as early as Rooney. Newcastle career, Aston Villa, but has been a Premier League winner uh, with with um, with Manchester City and with Liverpool. So Champions um, League winner. I mean, he's done yeah, exactly, it all. Exactly, exactly. I mean, it's interesting hearing Gregor talk about his coaching because he also talked about mentality. But that's going to be a big thing for Arteta with Odegaard and it's got to be a massive thing, hasn't it? With how, and, and we mentioned Phil Foden, I mentioned it on Monday's show, Pep has been asked about him over and over again and, and has sheltered him and, you know, co- coached him through to this point where he's now allowing him to shine. Coaching has to play a massive part in these, these players' development, don't they? When they burst onto that scene, do you hold them back? Do you let them go in the way that Rooney was just unleashed? You know, even when he signed for Manchester United, you know, there was no real... Ferguson wasn't hiding him. Sven wasn't hiding him for England. It's such a unique case. Coaching has to play a massive part as well, doesn't it? Yeah. But I mean, just quickly going back to the, the thing you're saying about the expectations almost placed on, on players. I think players do that themselves as well. You know, any kid growing up, they don't dream... Well... Let's be brutally honest. If you're if you're a good player growing up, you don't dream of playing for Chesterfield, who I played for. I was wondering whether he'd say a club that he actually played for or another club. He stayed safe and went for a club he played I did, for. Yeah, I did. <laughs> and you know, you don't dream of playing for Nottingham Forest in the Championship either. You dream of playing at the very, very top. You do. You do, and and you know there's some. There'll come a point where you realise what your ceiling might be, and your expectations start to be changed. But if you're a player of extreme talent, you dream of playing at the top, and and so it's not just about other people placing that expectation on you. It's about you doing it. So another thing to say is that I would say probably ninety percent, maybe more, of football careers end in with regret. So we're talking about Wayne Rooney, and. He's looking around, and yes, he's he's all these things he's achieved, and but there still is a conversation somewhere from people saying that has he really fulfilled his potential? Unless you are the real elite, or you're someone who's really, really level, kind of level-headed about and kind of sanguine about looking back at your football career, almost everyone has a regret because they think they could have done something differently. You know, if they'd won promotion there, they might have played in the Premier League or if 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 you played for Liverpool, crikey, look at Steven Gerrard or Carragher and all that. They won loads of silverware, they never won the Premier League title. Every, even the very best players, I would suggest, if they've been totally honest, will be filled with regrets at the end of their career. No one, very, very rarely does someone look back and think, I'm happy with that. But is it? does it tend to be then specific regrets I mean, for you personally, do you have specific regrets about, oh, that time I had a trial or that time I was, I had a run of games for Forest and, you know, it didn't quite work out? Or are they more general regrets when you're doing the washing up and thinking, ah, balls, you know, could I have done a bit more? You know, you, 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 give, you gave, you know, uh, vague examples there. Are, are your regrets specific to, to certain moments or are they vague ones? You can hone in specific regrets. I mean, I remember... <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I really. I remember being offered a like a three and a half year contract at Forest when I was in the team, and then the manager got sacked, and you know, I didn't I hadn't signed it, and I was released at the end of the year. So I could have had an opportunity to be at a big club like Forest for a lot, for nearly four for three more years, essentially. And you know, you know, and then you're in that environment, and you have the opportunity to to play there for longer. Or if I if I'm looking if I watch football now and I see, or if I'm at a game. 
and I see the real kind of those those special moments or like promotions and things like that. You think, you know, I, I won promotion twice. There, there are other other moments in my career where I feel like we should have won promotion, or you know, there are or you see players who you know for a hundred percent have fulfilled their they, to you anyway. They look like they've fulfilled their potential. They've you know, they're absolutely dedicated. There's life choices as well you make. You make actually things away from football. You think that probably wasn't good for my career, and that's another thing that's probably diminishing a little bit now, because football is more professional than in my day. But there's other things away from football that you realise probably affected how your career went. So there are lots of things that I, that you can regret in a career. I think, and I would suggest, as I say, that most most footballers look back on their career and think I could have done more or it may not always have been their fault it may have just been the situation a circumstance or a team they were playing in or they didn't get that move because the the club wouldn't come up and pay that extra million pound for them or something like that and then that team went on and won the FA Cup or something you know there's always things some of it's just circumstances but I think often I think very few careers end and the football is really happy with how it's gone to be honest the thing is you you mentioned Hugh about the environment of a club being important and Gregor mentioned about um the mentality of a player and they they are hugely important but also nowadays or even in the last you know 20 years and maybe before that a lot of it is about the the, the surrounding specifically around the player the, the people that they have have around them because uh, i do quite a few of these these sort of profile background stories and sometimes I speak to family members or, or the agents who represent them and they, they they don't really want to do it and they'd rather you did it next year maybe or something like that um and and it surprises me at first because you think of the coverage you, you'd expect them to want the coverage but it's the part of it is the expectation that 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 peace may put on them you know they they expect them to be a big footballer they expect them to to succeed in a in a, a great career but they just want that bit more time for them to develop and we've seen it a little bit over the last uh year 18 months two years with specifically jude, jude bellingham um yeah, they, he was 16 years old at Birmingham and there was so much talk around him and Man United. He's probably the one right now in terms of a young, young player who we expect so much from and so much pressure is being put on him already. And that's, I, I, I wonder and think that that is part of the reason why Dortmund worked for them because it's out of the limelight from the English, um, British uh, press, media, fans. So you can make those mistakes that you're bound to make. And you see the the highlights reel that we used to see of Jadon Sancho. And then you can come back here once you've got that belief and developed into the player you, you can become. Uh, interesting choice from Jude Bellingham and his family and that's a big factor as well uh, taking the decision to go to Borussia Dortmund and of course we as England fans hope sorry Gregor that he does great things in the future I do too 
Yeah. EFL yeah. graduate, absolutely. Exactly, exactly. Showing that great talent does come out of the football league. Gregor, by the way, don't 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 think too much. Don't get inside your own head too much. It's plenty of... <laughs> I'm just looking off westerly at the window now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> the uh, wind in the trees. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't worry, Gregor, don't worry. There are plenty of great things uh, for you to look forward to over the next year or so. And of course, you're the Times Iniesta, mate. We'll call you that. You continue to do great things for us. Uh, thank you to Tom Roddy, Gregor Robertson and Tom Clark. Remember, you can get uh, more of our award-winning journalism across all of your devices right now. Get yourself a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times. Sign up today and you'll get yourself one month free. Just search thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game to get started. We will see you on Monday. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.